Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, hi, everyone. This is Lori LeBay, the host of Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, and I hope you're all doing well. I'm in Minnesota, and I have to share with you, last weekend, everybody was in shorts, enjoying the sun, raking the leaves, going for walks, and it is snowing. Um, it missed, the big storm missed us uh, just by one city yesterday. They got uh Five to six inches and a couple pounds over got a foot, um, but it is snowing in Minnesota today. So we have no idea if our fertilizer is going to be any good on the, on the lawn or not. But, you know, things could be a lot worse. It's great that it's uh, Friday, and I'm, I'm really excited about our show today. I can't wait to have this conversation, and I hope, I hope you as the audience will join in with us. For those of you that are new, I just want you um, to know a little bit about Alzheimer's Speaks and and what we're about. Bottom line is we're an advocacy-based company in Minnesota providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We truly are about raising the voice of everyone. That means those living with dementia, those caring for people with dementia, both family and friends, as well as advocates. Um, or people who are just interested. It's about awareness and education, building a toolkit to empower all of us to have better lives because dementia is a disease. It's not something that we should become um, as a person or as a caregiver or care partner. It's just one of those things that we have to deal with. So at our core, we really believe that collaboratively we can we can win this battle. But again, it's about sharing our knowledge and our wisdom because everybody is coming from a different place. There's a saying in the dementia world, once you've met one person with Alzheimer's, you've met one person with Alzheimer's. But bottom line is, if you've met a person with dementia, you've met one person with dementia. If you have met one care partner, you've met one care partner. And then you multiply that by every environment is different. So there is no, you know, pill. There is no magic pill. There is no one way that is going to make life perfect. Um, If there was, we'd all be lining up for it in all other areas of our life as well. So I want to I want to also thank our audience for making us the number one influencer on the internet um, for Alzheimer's disease. We were recognized by ShareCare Now and Dr. Oz, and the only way that happened was through you, our listeners. 
by you liking us and sharing us. And I would very much appreciate if you continue to do that because Alzheimer's Speaks, again, this isn't this isn't the Lori LeBay show. This is about us working together, sharing knowledge. So if you like the show and like the resources that we have on alzheimerspeaks.com, please, please share that with people. I've been on this journey myself for 30 years with my own mother, and I know how critical getting information of the in the hands of someone who needs it, how important it really and truly is. If you're listening to the show um, live, you can participate. Um, you can call in live with your question, and that number is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757, or you can utilize the chat box as well. And just type in your comment or question. I'll be monitoring that as we go. And I know that our um, both of our guests would, would love to field any questions that you have. Um, and before I introduce them, I just want to um, mention again, if you're looking for an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world, you can go to Alzheimer's Disease International. That's www.alz.co.uk. And I um, am just starting to work with, I'm very excited about this um, mission with Coral Health. They have launched a music app called Music First, and I call it your music prescription, and it's therapeutic music that heals, inspires, and supports. And you can now um, test that out for a three-hour period, and if you want to purchase it, it's only $4.99 a month, but it's really cool. It's all research-based, so I, I highly recommend that you check them out as well, and that's a CoralHealth.com, C-O-R-O, and then Health, H-E-A-L-T-H.com. Wonderful organization, and you can look at Music First. They also have Coral Faith, um, which is a very interesting program, too, that these both have thousands of applications that people can pick from. So with no further ado, I want to introduce our guest today, and I have heard so much rattle in the cage about these two individuals. I am just thrilled to death to have them on the show. Tom and Karen Brenner are researchers, consultants, educators, and writers. Tom is a... Um, gerontologist who works as an education and research specialist in the Department of Aging, and Karen was a Montessori educator and has specialized in working with children who are deaf um, or had communication disorders. Both of them are contributing writers and on-air presenters for the National Public Radio, and they recently won a Professional Journalism Society Award for Excellence in Writing. Tom and Karen have combined their expertise um, and their experiences from Brenner Pathways, which is a consulting and education uh, company. The Brenners present seminars, uh, do training workshops throughout the United States, and they recently did the keynote speaking at the Alzheimer's Association Education Conference. The Brenners have published uh, uh, 
tons of things in magazines and journals throughout the U.S. as well as internationally. And they are contributing writers to the Alzheimer's Reading Room, uh, which if you're not familiar with that, is an absolutely fantastic venue that uh, Bob DeMarco has. Um, and also the Fisher Center for Alzheimer's and Research uh, Foundation, their blog, which again is just a wealth of information. Their um, first book here is called You Say Goodbye and We Say Hello, The Montessori Method for Positive Dementia Care. And the book is um, available both on Amazon and Kindle. So welcome, Tom. How are you doing today? I'm doing very good, Lori. And and after that introduction, I have to pinch myself and say, are you talking about me? <laughs> because it's... It is has been a rather incredible, wonderful journey that Karen and I have been on, and and very lucky people indeed. Um, and and I think you're the type of a person that understands when I say we're lucky to be doing this work. So, oh, definitely, it it is a gift. Um, people in if you're in this field, um, because you really almost can't help it. I mean, mm-hmm. it is a true gift. If you're here because it's a job, eh, it's a job. Mm-hmm. But for those of us that have a passion to really make a difference, it is so much fun and so energizing and so neat to connect with others. Um, how are you doing today, Karen? I'm fine, Lori. Thanks. And thanks again for this wonderful opportunity to talk about our new book, You Say Goodbye and We Say Hello, and as well as uh, hopefully connecting with your listeners. Yeah, it's it's a, it's an exciting time. I was I was so excited when I got the book. I love even just the color um and design of the book. It's just it's really warm and welcoming and it's just it, I know when I opened it up it was just like this this blossom of positive energy. I mean, it just like <laughs> oh, came Lori. out of the package. Oh, Lori, it was, that's it. Yeah. You, and, you definitely said it. And it's um and I've heard so much about you guys and um actually have tried to connect over the years and it just hadn't happened and then our friend Carol Larkin hooked us up and um you know, timing is everything. Um That's right. I'm, I'm a firm believer in this, but the way this book is designed, it is such an easy read with just incredible gifts, page after page, um, oh, to people Thank reading you. the book. And, you know, you've got these guideposts there that really help center people, that are caring for people. Um, I love this one here. We do the work with them, not for them. And that is something that we really have to remember because as caregivers, we think it's all about us giving to them and not getting filled or not engaging. It's just a task. And even though we know better, um, we don't act appropriately all the time when it comes to, you know, how would we like to be cared for. So um, the book is is filled with great stories and pictures and um, lots of space to be able to take notes in big print, which I am so thrilled with now that I'm in my 50s. So um, kudos kudos to um, designing the book. Very, very, very well done. So let's talk about, um, let me stop yapping and let's hear from you guys. I'm going to throw this first question out to Tom. And okay. Tom, so how did, how did you come up with the idea to, to do this project together? Well, Laurie, Karen had been, uh, as you 
have stated uh, Montessorian for a considerable amount of time. And so I, I have been exposed to the Montessori principles for, oh my gosh, 30 years at least. And, and so I had a, a basic understanding of the principles. And, and then my own children were exposed to it. They went to Montessori schools. And I saw I saw the method in action, how they would learn, and and how the process w- was so beneficial to their to their own development. <clears throat> and so this was like in the back of my mind, right? And then all of a sudden, I became interested in dementia, and dementia care, and especially the tools that were out in the world for caregivers. And so I did a thesis uh, on caregiving and the tools that were out there. And while I was researching the tools that that caregivers were given to do the job, frontline staff, this is what the, what the research was primarily about um, in, in long-term care facilities, um, all the information uh, seemed to lead to uh, the concept that the environment that that is there for the care um, seemed to be impacting the work that the caregivers could do or couldn't do, and also it would impact the uh, attitudes of uh, the people with dementia. So <clears throat> there it is. That's that's kind of where the the aha light bulb moment went off. I, the word environment became the primary uh, issue that I could see, and then as as fortunate. Uh, as I was, I was able to see uh, different environments changing where we were developing more person-centered care in the 90s. And, and uh, that concept, away from the, the real sterile environment to the more home-like environment, the Montessori method seemed to, to again, uh, indicate that we have to take a deeper look into um, you know, the type of, of environment that we're doing the work that we're, we're involved in. So then I said to Karen, Karen, I see some, some parallels here. What do you think? And then Karen, of course, said, of course, there's parallels. It, it never changes throughout your lifetime. It's the same when you're young as when you're old. You, you have to have an environment in which you can flourish. So then I started asking Karen, well, what ways do you see uh, – that this could be applied to uh, an individual with dementia flourishing. And then Karen and I came up with a number of different approaches uh, as far as, you know, individualizing uh, the Montessori method. And so, Karen, maybe you'd like to say a little bit about about how we began that process. Would you like me to do that, Lori? Please, please. Okay. Well, um, uh, just very briefly, for, for people who are not so familiar with the Montessori method. Dr. Maria Montessori was the first woman in Italy to ever become a medical doctor, a physician, and uh, she worked in an insane asylum in Rome with uh, the children of the inmates and also children that were considered defective. And uh, she saw that they needed um, stimulation through their hands, you know, to work with things with through their hands and also the five senses and. Working with these children, observing them, seeing what their needs were, she developed a learning um, program for them. Five years later, these so-called defective children were tested, and they they tested as well or better than the children in the public schools in Rome. So then the government of Italy asked Dr. Montessori to set up a school in the these terrible slums in Rome, the San Lorenzo slums, 
And uh, the first thing she had to do was to teach the children how to keep themselves clean and how to take care of themselves and then how to take care of their environment. And uh, through this work in the slums of Rome, Dr. Montessori developed, she was the first person to come up with the idea for child-sized furniture. Before that, kids had to make do with furniture that was way too big for them. And so you can begin to see some parallels between what Dr. Montessori discovered 100 years ago and what we're discovering more recently in person-centered care, and that is the environment should fit the needs of the people using it, not not that people should have to adapt to whatever environment they find themselves in. So knowing that history of Dr. Montessori and seeing the, what was Tom was researching in person-centered care, it was a real aha moment for us. And we started off volunteering at a local home where Tom had done his part of his internship, and they were very gracious. They let us come on Saturdays and we would try certain of the Montessori exercises. And over, over a two-year period of volunteering there, we discovered what part of the Montessori program worked really well and what part didn't work so well. And we also sort of found our feet working together. I was very frightened in the beginning because I had never been around people who had dementia, and Tom really had to coax me into it. Um, and we talk about that in our book, as you may recall, mm-hmm. that he really had to talk me into it. But, boy, I sure am glad he did. Well, I, I am, too. <laughs> it's a marvelous, marvelous uh, book. I, you know, and I, I, I find it fascinating um, what she was able to do and the differences that they were able to see with her method and um and and how she applied it and it, you know it's just so nice that people took notice that's um, right because i think sometimes there's a lot of people out there doing things that are different and they are purposely not noticed um mm-hmm. but i but i think with her method they were so profound it's how do you ignore you know something like this so um very 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 interesting can you tell us um in terms of dementia, I guess um, you know how how did you how did you come to apply this this method? How did you start um, shifting kind of from kids um, to people with dementia? You know that's a great question, Lori. And what we did is we followed Dr. Montessori's example. We observed and we saw the things that people really enjoy doing, and. Uh, what we found is it's so important to give someone with dementia something to hold in their hand that's meaningful. As you know, and many of the listeners realize, it's really hard for someone with dementia to start a conversation or join in or become engaged out of thin air. So we need to give them something concrete to sort of center them and put them in this present moment. And we have found that things from nature flowers, herbs, even a cup of snow, which you have a lot of there in Minnesota. <laughs> More Autumn than we care to have. Yeah, you do. So, <laughs> Autumn leaves or maybe um, uh, uh, stones, river stones that are smooth. Anything like that is very meaningful, as well as something that was meaningful from their own lives. Perhaps um, someone was a violinist, so we hand them their violin to hold. Um, or someone loved baseball, so we give them a baseball glove to hold. Something that centers them, and then from that, then we can begin to build on conversation, reminiscence, 
So that's sort of like the underpinning for all the exercises that we have developed. Um, and and as Tom mentioned earlier, um, the Montessori is based on um, individuals' interests, passions, you know, and not necessarily just what they did. I mean, maybe someone was a plumber, but maybe he didn't like being a plumber. And so if you hand him a wrench and a pipe, he may not be real happy with that. Maybe his real interest was uh, music. And as you were mentioning, that wonderful new app that people can buy. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, you know, if you, if you gave him, you plugged in him into that app and he could listen to music, then maybe that's how you would reach that person. I think... If Tom, if you don't mind, could you talk just a little bit about the procedural memory? Because that's really where we get started. Right. We we use uh, the concept that, uh, as Maria Montessori did, that people are learning uh, through their 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 bodies, um, using the senses. And uh, when we were um, trying to find out what would work and what wouldn't work, um, <clears throat> we did use the Montessori tools, and we say tools because they're not toys, and we emphasize that. It's a tool for a child. It's a tool for an adult. It's, we, we always were saying, at what age does a ball become uh, age-appropriate? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, a ball is appropriate at any age, right? Yep. So anyway, we we used some of Maria Montessori's tools, and, and we we built on that. So in other words, the beautiful part of this concept is that your imagination is the only limitation. If a person is at a more advanced stage, some very simplistic tools or uh, tools for engagement um, can can be appropriate um, at any age, but uh, specifically if a person says, well, I'm not really interested in that, the, the idea is that Montessori method has ex- what they call extensions, and you can make anything as complex as you want. Um, you can teach mathematics uh, using the Montessori method. So uh, what I'm saying is that you, you start, it's a place to begin. And beginning is the hardest thing to do when you're taking care uh, of a person that has memory loss. And the muscle memory becomes uh, tantamount to uh, a person doing something again and again and again. And, and that was a, another beautiful thing that we found <clears throat> is that an exercise such as reading, which uses the muscles of the eye, um, if people are are not, you know, we say use it, use it or lose it. Well, that that goes for uh, activities of daily living as well. So we knew that they're all there's a interlock here, and so we uh, designed some reading materials in which a person could again. Uh, get their eyes going to track and read, whether it, it was one word or or a poetry, uh, two pages of, of written words in a, a larger size font. So, in other words, we're 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 testing and trying. But the beautiful thing is, is the feedback is instantaneous. It's not like we have to go off to a laboratory and say, "What did we learn here?" We can see what we're learning as we're doing it, and that's the most amazing thing to see. And uh, as others have stated who have who've also used this method, the measurement becomes, are they having a good time? Are they smiling? And, you know, it was a big deal at one time in history to engage a person with dementia for 10 minutes. Well, Karen and I have had conversations and engagements going for like an hour and a half, two hours, until a person says, <laughs> it's time to eat, you know? 
and mm-hmm. and that became the whole concept what what we could use to start and and we we allude in in our book you say goodbye and we say hello we have a number of just beginning jump off points uh where a person can start to think how can i you know transpose this idea into something else we saw a wonderful exercise that is a Montessori exercise in which an elder person uh, was uh, with dementia was was actually doing leaf washing. Now, if you can imagine this, uh, on a live plant in which a person with dementia had a sponge and they were washing the leaves of a live living plant, and then the reminiscence that came out of that, but imagine what kind of a feeling that person had because now they were caring for something. I mean, boom. Uh, If that isn't a magic moment that a person who's being cared for is given the opportunity to care for a living thing, and that's all right out of the pages of the Montessori uh, uh, playbook. So having said that, I get excited just thinking of... uh, uh, our imaginations right now, Lori, are the only thing that prevents us from really developing and and continuing onwards with new concepts uh, applying this method. You know, I love that statement because um, to me that's one of the things Alzheimer's Speaks is, is about is empowering people and getting them to to be creative because as adults, we a lot of us get sucked dry. You know, we we get thrown into the box and put into the mold and it's supposed to be done this way and this way only and I think one of the coolest things about this disease and I know people will say that I'm nuts um, saying a cool thing about dementia but it teaches us to play again, it teaches us to be flexible, it teaches us Mm -hmm. to be creative it -hmm. teaches us to, to know there is always a better way and to not rely on just having one answer mm-hmm. because when you when you have this toolkit built when you're able to you know really analyze the situations you're in and read a person's nonverbals which so often we just take for granted mm-hmm. but when what, but when we're able to raise our skill level in that the connections we have with people are so much more powerful and um, not only to them, but to us. And I think life just becomes richer. Um, I, I just, I just think it's a beautiful, beautiful process of um, teaching people to be creative. And and part of that is helping them remove the fear of failure, mm-hmm. and not exactly. looking at it as failure. Just looking at it as, you know, I have a mantra that it's about progress, not perfection. Yeah, and, exactly. and and to me, I my belief is every moment is an opportunity to improve um, in the next moment. So it's not about failure. It's just about, you know, climbing another step and being mm-hmm. able to take what I've done and, and twist it a little bit differently and not look at it as failure, but look at it as an opportunity to improve. So it's really just switching that, that mindset. And I think that's you know, so wrapped into what you guys do um, with the Montessori method because it really is about improvement and life engagement and and so forth. Karen, mm-hmm. did you want to say anything about my comments at all? It sounded like you might. Oh, oh no. <laughs> you sound like 
You sound like all the people we meet at the Montessori conference. You'd fit right in. Do you, do you own earth shoes? <laughs> I'm a barefoot girl when I can go oh. barefoot. <laughs> because the Montessori philosophy is steeped in this idea of this positive approach and using positive language. And when we say positive language, we don't mean being condescending or phony, but, you know, being very real with someone and saying to someone that uh, who has dementia that you've just spent some time with, you know, I really enjoyed being with you today, or I had a, I had a great time and I love your laugh, you make me laugh when you laugh, something that's genuine and specific. And that's what Dr. Montessori was all about. Instead of saying to a child, don't run, say, please walk. Or instead of saying to a child, don't be mean, say, be kind. It seems so simple and kind of like, what's the big deal? But, oh, boy, try to do it every day in your life, and it's a real challenge. It yeah. really is. But language matters, and how we frame language matters. And we found that in our own personal lives. And as you say, uh, this is one of the gifts that's given to us in working with people who have dementia and also that gift to learn how to be in the moment. Just with that person in this moment, everything else falls away. You're not thinking about what you're going to make for dinner. You're not thinking about anything but just this interaction you're having at that moment. And as you know, that's so powerful, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Um, now, on on your book, you know, your um, kind of subtitle is The Montessori Method for Positive Dementia. Um, yeah. is, there, is there a negative dementia? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, uh, before Tom answers that, I just want to say, when we wrote that title, it never occurred to us, that so, but so many people ask us the same question you just asked us, never occurred to us that, that we would be implying there was negative. We were just saying that, that our method is positive. But anyway, when we thought about it, then Tom came up with some things that maybe we do need to work on in the dementia field. Okay. Yeah, and, and I guess I guess it wouldn't be a polar opposite. I wouldn't go so far as to say a negative uh, dementia care, although you know some people might say that. But I would say a not such a productive uh, dementia care, a mm-hmm. less productive dementia care, a, a a way in which we're we're expecting the same answers um, that we've always had out of an individual who cannot produce the same answers, but we keep expecting something to stay the same, and if we just keep asking the same questions over and over again of this person that's having uh, experiencing memory loss, somehow we're going to break through and they're just going to give us the magic moment and say, oh yeah, that's right, I remember what I had for breakfast. And it's the expectation on the part of the caregiver, and of course there's a great deal of of, uh, frustration on the part of the person that's being cared for because they can't give you what you're asking for, and that would not be a very productive interaction or an engagement. So we always like to say, um, let's look for their strengths and and find out what strengths are still existent. And believe you me, uh, some of the wisdom that that has been imparted to me personally and to Karen uh, from individuals who are in the last days 
of their life on earth with dementia, the wisdom that they have imparted to us, it's like just before they left us, the clouds separated and the wisdom came down upon us and they showered us with a nugget of or a jewel of of wisdom and we said, well, we wouldn't have gotten that if we weren't looking for a more positive expectation from this process. So I think the 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 answer to why would you use a word like positive, it's because if we look at things in a negative light as explorers who are trying to find the new world here and we think well you know there's nothing out here but 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 vast empty water we we're not expecting to discover a whole land of uh you know opportunity in which we could uh, provide better care or care that's more appropriate for our loved ones so um it's a success and failure issue uh, if if it's not working, we want people to say, well, let's let's look at this positively. If it's not working, let's do something different. And thinking out of the box, as you know, is from reading our book, uh, you say goodbye and we say hello. There's your comparison. We're not saying goodbye. We're not going to say goodbye. We're going to say hello, hello, hello. And 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 I'm I can guarantee you that more often than not, we're going to be extremely surprised at uh, what an individual human being is able to give us in terms of understanding and wisdom through this terrible circumstance. I mean, there's there's no way we're going to say this is this is a, a, a hunky dory situation we're finding us in, but it doesn't help any of us if we look at everything like woe is me, woe is that person, woe is everything. Because that's not that's not the key that's going to unlock uh, success. So that's why we use the word positive. Let's let's be positive about what we're doing. We're not saying to be a Pollyanna and say, "Oh boy, isn't this the greatest thing that ever happened to mom or dad or my husband or wife or whoever." We're just saying that there's still something that we can do to have. And we say, you know, the the Montessori moment is the moment in which we're there totally together and experiencing the joy of living. And there's still some joy to living um, with a person that's experiencing the difficulty. Yeah, oh, definitely. You know, my mom's been in end stages now for four years, and we just did a little um, music therapy with her. A friend of mine is going through Naomi Files validation um, training and asked if she could kind of use her for her study. And I said, sure. And, you know, I've shown the little video clips to friends, and they're like, oh, my gosh, she just, you know, she just pops up. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's absolutely amazing. And everyone, I mean, it just puts a smile on everyone's mm-hmm. face. So mm-hmm. if if people can realize, you know, those small little things, mm-hmm. you know, in my opinion, and some may argue with me, are so much more powerful and heartfelt than a lot of the big things that we typically look for. And when you can appreciate those those little things, the glint in the eye, the giggle, the smile, the mm-hmm. word, mm-hmm. the song, the, mm-hmm. the touch, I mm-hmm. mean, those melt your heart. That's right. That's true. That's right. 
and just make such a connection. The the other thing I thought comical too when I asked you about um, the positive dementia, it's like, well, bingo, there we go, just kind of with our our negative mode. Well, if you're saying positive, mm-hmm. there must be negative. And you know what <laughs> what you were saying, Karen, is you know it's it's harder than we think. And and there I fell right into the trap. <laughs> Of old ways and, and old thinking, uh-huh. and so um, yeah. And you'd think I would know better, but you know, we all do it. And no. it's it's one of those things I think that we have to teach people not to be ashamed about it, but to move on and right. just to try to ingrain into ourselves of oh, I do have to watch for that and, yeah. uh, it, uh, and move forward. Yeah, it's no, you're right, and it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, we found that yeah. out too. We still we still have to work. We still work at it every day. Mm-hmm. I can believe that. Now, what types of care partners would, would benefit from this approach? Um, and, Karen, I'll throw this one out to you. Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks, Lori. Well, um, we have found uh, through our training and the seminars and the talks we give that uh, the Montessori method uh, for dementia care works very well with medical staff, and we've trained uh, lots of medical staff as well as frontline caregivers and therapists of all sorts, uh, art therapy, uh, music therapy, um, occupational therapy, of course, physical therapy, all those types of therapists we've trained. And then, and most importantly, uh, the friends and family caregiver, the the people who do the work every day, our unsung heroes, Mm -hmm. and uh, those people most especially. So we have trained just about everybody who comes in contact uh, with people who have dementia, and we found that each one of those groups finds something valuable that they can use uh, in their caregiving work, and that's one of the uh, that's one of the reasons that this application has been so successful over the years. And mm-hmm. and Karen uh, told me originally before we started to to get involved with uh, compiling this information in the book form that um, she saw. An individual in in a large bookstore, <clears throat> rifling, I think's the term, isn't it? Through a number of books on the topic of dementia, and she said, and the woman, what what she was looking for, was an answer for how t- how she could be, how she herself could be dealing with this situation. And Karen said, I want to give that person who's looking for the answer, just just a little comfort, a little understanding that there is a way to be, and that's a way to understand how you can be, um, your own behavior can be dealing with this in a way that's comforting. And we've had a number of comments from individuals who have had this book in their hands. My own brother, who's caring for his wife, and he is the sole caregiver. She doesn't have dementia, mind you, but she is in the state of being an invalid, and he is the sole caregiver. And my own brother, who does not give compliments lightly, said to me, Tom, this book should be in everyone's hands because it validates the role of what I'm about. And when you when your own brother tells you that you think well thanks you know 
<laughs> that's that's good. So this this has other applications too, not just in dementia, but caring for an individual. When a person feels like you just patted them on the back by mm-hmm. saying the work you're doing is important, not just for your loved one, but it's important for the whole world. And yeah. Karen and I say this. If if mankind has some trajectory or a path of evolving, you know, we, we came out of the caves. That was a, an important step uh, for us to do. Um, and now the next, the major thing that we have to learn as human beings is how to really do this correctly and how to be caregivers um for everyone, because once we learn this, that'll mean that we can all survive in a much more uh, appropriate manner as far as helping each other. So very true, very very true. I and like you said, when you when you get a compliment from a family member, because even <laughs> though you're the professional and everyone else believes what you say, family just doesn't. You know, and I I, I hear that all the time from people, That's right. um, especially you know. Um, well, in the medical field, they're like, mm-hmm. I'm a nurse. I get this. This is my job. Or I'm a social worker. Right. But uh-huh. in the ranks of the family, I am nobody. That's right. That's right. I, I know nothing. I, I revert back to my birth role. Right. And that's, that's how I'm seen in those dynamics. So, um, And I think the other thing that's really important about what you said is that so many people don't see themselves as a caregiver or a care partner or a carer, however you want to use the phrase. Um, and I think they don't because they they don't feel comfortable with it. They don't really know what it entails. And this has such a positive spin because it's all about engagement and it's all about building relationship. Yeah. And and for whatever reason, we ha- we have viewed caregiving as this crisis state, and really, it's this natural state. Um, you know, one that I I always say that um, started the moment we were conceived. Yeah. And, and people will argue that, and I'll say, how many tummies have you talked to, and how many bellies have you patted? You know, there's a relationship that starts before the womb, and it's all about those nonverbals and our our energy and our excitement about engaging one another. And that never ends throughout our life. And many would argue even after that we can still have these relationships. So it's it's getting people to shift back to the power of their relationships and not losing them because of an illness or because of some you know some stage of life or a job loss or i mean the uh-huh. list can go on and on and uh-huh. on you know with that but to say this this relationship is important and at its core i can never lose it mhm that's right. right that's exactly right yeah that's yeah. that's exactly it um oh, can you can you share with us um what surprised you most about your work in the field of dementia? And Tom, I'll throw this one out to you. Thank you, Lori. That uh, that is a is a great question. But as I already might have stated, but I'm going to state it again, that people with dementia still have something to give to uh, each and every one of us and to the world. There's a story that's that's contained in all of our existences as as human beings, and that story can be uh, 
accessed, and we can gain we can gain that information from a person if we know how to to uh, take certain steps to get it. And I'm going to cut to the chase and say that Karen and I are 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 all about gathering stories, and everyone has a story. And what we have done. This is amazing because you'd say, well, you know, they're in a locked dementia unit. What do they have to offer the world? Well, uh, Karen and I have been the torch carriers, and we've gained little snippets of a person's story as far as who they were, what they did. And we've shared this information with other people who might be in a situation in which they, they're they no longer accessing the public. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, so... That process of sharing stories. So a person, one person with dementia, if we carry that story to another person with dementia, and and we make it so that other person can read a poem that uh, was written in another place, then all of a sudden we're, we become like telephone lines, and we're having people communicate. So can people with communi- can people communicate with each other when they have dementia well karen and i have found certainly they can we've told some stories that have been uh or we've written stories uh, and compiled them not long mind you but short stories that a person with dementia has given to us and we've taken it uh to another person and they've read that story in a group reading uh, we we have one story called the best gift, and that's I think that's in our book. You say goodbye and we say hello, and it's uh, that story has been shared with other individuals who are suffering from memory loss, and they've read that story by a person who gave it to us and as a as a present. So, mm-hmm. what am I finding out here? I'm finding out that I don't know anything about how can we have. Uh, keep the lines of communication open for a longer period of time. Does a person who is experiencing memory loss still have something to tell me as far as do can I learn something from uh, them and their life experience? Well, I'm here to tell you I have been squared, as they say, by a person with very serious dementia because they looked at me and said, oh, you learned something now, didn't you, young fellow? Or au contraire, you know? And I'm standing there thinking, you're not supposed to be teaching me something. I'm here to help you, you know? But the point is, no, that's not the way it is. And that is that is a huge understanding. Uh, and that's where the do with instead of do for, uh, we've... and and. We start someplace, and we never know where it's going to take us, but what we want to do is begin the journey. And a person with dementia is still on their own journey, and when they tell you what their journey is, you would be so surprised to find out that they just might tell you something, a piece of wisdom or a piece of information that you need to hear uh, as the smart guy that can navigate everything in, in society without any problems. But, you know, we all have some memory issues. But the point here I'm making is there's so much we can learn from each other, and I never thought that was going to be there. I thought mm-hmm. it was going to be, I'm going to do this. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to get it. No, no. They're going to help me. They're going to show me. People are going to, we're all in this thing together. It's just going to be different degrees of understanding. And um, so even it, when you think about it, when you think about how difficult it is sometimes to keep that ball up in the air when, you know, half the group are falling asleep, but then you understand that's something you need to learn. I need to learn that. 
We even came up with an idea of, okay, so you want to play a trivia game. And we designed a trivia game because we knew they were playing trivia games. And, and we saw, well, when when a person would play the traditional trivia game, there were a number of people who could keep up and there were a number of people who could not. So what Karen and I did is we based a trivia game on the fact that if the third answer in a trivia question was always the same, right. it was always right. The third mm-hmm. Yeah, it was always right. So we're saying procedurally, we're going to we're going to set this thing up so that everybody is going to begin to understand. I'm going to name three things, but the third one is going to be successful. It's going to be the mm-hmm. right answer. Everybody in the group gets the right answer. They they get the pattern. They they can learn patterns. And yeah. and it's a, it's astounding. You know, because and so I'm learning things of this nature. Is that a big deal in the world of uh, Wall Street? Maybe not. But but even, in, but in ahead, terms sorry. of life, it is because it's about empowering individuals. Yes. And and by yes. structuring it different, by yes. by empowering them to build their confidence, allows mm-hmm. them to mm-hmm. want to engage with us yes. instead of thinking, ah, I just can't get this. That's huge. Yes. You got it. That's right. Yeah. We yeah, we all like to be we all like to be successful. Mhm. Oh, changes. definitely. No, mm-hmm. never never changes. Never changes. Um one of the things, you know, like I said, I love these guideposts that you have in here and I I'm going to read a couple other ones if you don't mind to people. Yeah, of course. Um cuz I think they're relevant to what we've been talking about. One says um, we've met many different kinds of people living with dementia, and all of them have one thing in common, that there's not a phony in the bunch. <laughs> I love that. They are so authentic. You know? And and sometimes people get upset a little too authentic because they don't ha- have their filters, the political filters. Right. That's right. Um, but, you know, uh, there's a couple of groups on Facebook that, um, you know, through social media where people have connected all over the world, memory people and forget-me-nots, and I'm sure there's there's lots of others out there as well. Um, but memory people, for example, had a little convention last year. And out of, you know, thousands of them, there was about 40, I think, that met in New York. And the uh-huh. one thing that came out, um, you know, one after another um, was they couldn't believe how powerful it was to meet one another because they felt so connected. Yeah, and I yeah. said, well, that's because you're not talking about the weather. You're having real, honest conversations about exactly. deep personal things. And, right. and that just that just makes it um a more rich relationship. And yes. again, we've we've forgotten the importance of being authentic and, and allowing others to be who they are, but instead we we like to judge and categorize and put them mm-hmm. in a box. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, right. That's and, right. Um and so to me that's one of the gifts again wrapped in dementia is to be more judgmental. Um, live with a lot more gratitude and appreciation yes. and be much more flexible. And, you know, when you can do that, or for me anyways, man, I don't have near the stress in my life I used to. No, no. There you go. That's it. Yep, that's one of the life lessons that we've learned too. Yeah. Yep, 
Yeah, and the other guidepost that I like was you have um, people living with dementia have so much to teach us, so much to share with us, um, the wisdom, the joy, the heartache, the fortitude, um, which is very, very true. I cannot mm-hmm. believe the lessons I have learned not only from my, my mom on her 30-year journey and those mm-hmm. that she's still teaching me in her end stages, which has been four years, um, but the connections I've made with others, the the relationships and the people that I've met on this journey mm-hmm. have allowed me to be more authentic and mm-hmm. they're more authentic because mm-hmm. you don't have time for the, the crap in the no. world. You know, you just you you need to kind of, you need to be honest and have those conversations and uh, they're just, um, it's really a bl- it's really been a blessing um, to build a community that that understands and accepts. Um, good. It's yeah. really a, a neat, neat place to to be able to be. Is there, um, Karen, one story in the book that just stands out for you that you'd like to like to share as an example with people? Oh boy, there's. <laughs> There are so many. Uh, Tom is prompting me to say, Joe, um, I will tell the story of Joe. Joe was a a 94-year-old farmer we met in a very rural part of the Midwest, and he had spent his entire life on this one farm. And um, he he grew up in the Depression, and he told us the story of how he was a very bright student and he could have gone uh, to college, but he was didn't want to ask his dad and grandpa to they'd have to hire somebody to take his place and he didn't think that that would be fair to them so um he stayed on the farm and then he came up with this formula about how he's going to buy his farm and everybody thought he was crazy because it was the middle of the depression and what joe taught us was that he just lived on the money he made selling his eggs and his milk and all the money he made when he sold his hogs he saved and uh before too long, in about 10 years' time, he was able to buy his farm, 80-acre farm, outright. And the reason that story resonates so much with us is that it demonstrated the grit and the fortitude of our parents and grandparents and also this, the, the Midwest, how, the, how strong the people are that have, have worked this land. And then also the idea of being disciplined that kind of discipline to save that hog money for for a future um for future investment and Tom and I laugh and say no we got to get get us some hog money so we can <laughs> save it and the thing about Joe was he was such a brilliant man and and such a wise man and of course he did have dementia and he would kind of remember us sometimes or not but he knew he liked us because he knew that we liked to listen to his stories. Mm-hmm. So Joe is kind of representative of this generation who taught us the importance of, you know, grit and fortitude and not giving up. And um, I think that's one of the great life lessons that we learned. And just very quickly, I'll say to you, uh, Lori, um, I told Joe's story on Chicago Public Radio. I wrote a story about him and and we put it on the air, and uh, we told Joe that. We said, Joe, your story was on the radio in Chicago, and hundreds of thousands of people heard about how you saved your hog money. And all he could say was, well, my land, my land. Oh. 
Oh, how cute is that? So when Tom talks about us taking these little snapshots, vignettes of someone's life and and taking it and sharing it to the larger world, we do that. We take it from long-term care home to adult day center to a talk uh, for the Alzheimer's Association, but we also put it out on the radio. So our point is that people who have dementia still have so much to share not only with us but with the world. Yeah. So it's it's this is the thing that when we got into this work we had no idea that that would be a big component of our work is sharing these stories that these people well, share well, with the us. The stories are so powerful and to me Thank the you. stories are what people remember and they um you know they can they can visualize themselves in that situation, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and and it just makes it real. It's not statistic. It's not no. methodology. It's it's not clinical. It's it's personal, real stuff. Yeah, um, that's yeah. happened. And again, I think it's just so so empowering. Tom, I'm going to ask you. Um, you know, I just you have all these little activities in here, which I absolutely adore, like the hub the hubcap polishing exercise or the pennant sorting um game or the tackle box um you know game. Can you tell people about some of these games and why you put them in there and how they've been working for people well thanks Laura. yeah um well i'll I'll just uh tell you a little bit about the tackle box exercise. One of the one of the great things about Montessori uh, as an approach is they present an activity as a self-contained activity. Everything you need to do something in the Montessori world can be on a tray, and that allows the individual to the student, the child to to have everything they need to proceed with a learning exercise. Well, I thought, golly. Um, could you think of a of an of an adult uh entity uh other than like a tackle box cuz when you go fishing everything's in that tackle box <laughs> that, yeah that's going to that's going to mean whether or not you you got your bait or you have your your hooks or you have your lures or whatever and so i thought well why shouldn't a person with uh uh memory loss or dementia Maybe maybe this would benefit that person to take a look inside of a tackle box because there's there's that element of curiosity what's in the tackle box. So I thought I'd put it together based on the, the Montessori approach and and there's uh, there's some there's some objects in there. We we try to do the matching um, matching lures. And no hooks. Now that's the first principle. How can I, how can I show a person a lure without hooks? Well, what I decided was is that I could put on uh, little spinner blades and take the hooks off and just put on dangling spinner blades, mm-hmm. and that would represent something dangling off of the lure. So it's going to be completely not dangerous. Um, and so. What I did is I put a number of objects inside of the tackle box, and then I proceeded. Oh, I also took pictures, because that's a part part uh, part of the extension in the Montessori world. I took uh, matching pictures of fish and uh, fishermen, and um, I put a whole bunch of cards in there that we could look at those pictures, uh, and they were all laminated. Um, so. Essentially, I'm building an exercise that's self-contained. So here I have a tackle box 
um, that's got a number of different uh, objects in it that are going to be safe to handle and manipulate. And uh, we we field tested it, and and I can't tell you straight out of the box. And it's uh, first I thought it would be just for men, mm-hmm. and then I was writing to a number of uh, professional fishermen saying, "Would you like to contribute something?" Because I was looking for a cheap contribution. Do you have any mm-hmm. lures you'd like to send me? And uh-huh. then I I got a number of uh, responses from women. And they'd say, hey, you know, women are fisher women too. You know, it's not just fishermen. So this particular exercise is not gender specific, but here's the the rub of it. Okay, I'm starting out with the concept that I'm going to have all these objects inside of a tackle box. Now, um, what happened and what happens is we're all about, we said, stories. Well, the reminiscence Mm -hmm. that comes out of a, a person with dementia's uh, background who was involved in fishing, which is uh, for a generation more than another, I'd say. Um, uh, it, it's like we're off to the races. Mm-hmm. And and here's the, the second thing that happens. Okay, so I got my. I'm finding out who was a fisherman in here because these people are jumping right in there and they want to get into the, all of the objects and they start talking about their stories and fishing experiences. But here's the here is. Here's the phenomenon that I did not expect. Every time we come back to a place or a facility uh, where there are those fishermen, they want to talk about fishing with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't remember me. They don't remember the exercise. But I can initiate a conversation and I'll say, hey, Jim, how about bluegills? What did you think of those bluegills? And, oh, my gosh, it's like, wow, let's talk fishing. And But how would I know that if I didn't start somewhere? How would I know that Jim was an avid fisherman who wanted to keep, you know, keep he, he really held on to that memory if I didn't start with muscle memory procedurally uh, reconstituting his memory through an object that would put something in his hands that would bring up the whole fishing experience? But what we have found out is there are a lot of things like that. We've done that with cooking. We've done that with uh, a person who would who was a, a great baker, and uh, we'd say we, you know, herbs. We've used uh, spices and uh, whatnot, and all of it was a step to initiate this engagement that has been, you know, I, I can't tell you, but I was designing specific. Uh, activities that would uh, get somebody to reminisce. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. even as much about the activity itself because we tell people, plan it, plan it, plan it, and then when somebody starts to open up in another direction, then go with them. So it becomes, it's not about the activity now. It's that's only our starting point. If a person wants to keep talking about fishing, but if somebody looks at, at at uh, my fishing exercise and looks at at that fish fish picture and says, oh, man, I love to eat trout, you know, and then we start talking about eating fish. But that's great. That's where we want to go. So anyway, that's something when I was thinking, how can I get some, as far as those pennants were concerned, I'll tell you something funny about pennants. Uh, they were baseball pennants from the National and American League. We've had conversations about that. They're very small pennants, but 
we were able to create a key in which we could have a group leader that would know who was in the National League, who was in the American League, what teams that is. Mm-hmm. But here's the weird thing about, about woolen pennants. They have smelled the same since <laughs> for the last 60 years. You smell a woolen pennant, and people will actually smell it. Yeah. I don't know. There you, there you go. So. So where was that written in some book about uh, things to do with people with dementia? It's not. So I was very lucky that the hubcap thing was a freaky deal that I knew. I knew from being uh, back in the day when you know we would take chrome polish and shine the chrome on a car. Now you you they're not selling a lot of that chrome polish because it's all plastic. <laughs> But I took in hubcaps that I found in a junkyard and started to engage a, a person who liked old cars. And yeah, it was non-toxic polish. Karen always tells me to tell people that because, you know, it's all about Montessori world. They polish. Everything is safe to touch. So, But the hubcap thing was so f- fantastic because this person, through the repetition of polishing a hubcap, started to tell me stories about Vietnam and and mm-hmm. their their experience in the war, and I thought, see, so I wanted to polish hubcaps and talk about old cars, but that's not what that person wanted to talk about. Sure. Once that person, sure. yeah, once that person started polishing, then he came up with war stories, and I thought, duh, you yeah. know, inspection, polishing your boots, polishing your brass, of course, you know. Yeah. Oh, well, wonderful. Well, I, I need to. Um, get our next guest on here but but time has just flown by you guys are oh, Lori, doing you've been fascinating great. work it's been a, just a a, pliver, a privilege a privilege and an honor to, a privilege oh, Lori, and an honor you've been great. To, to have you on the show thank um, you Karen how do people get a hold of you what what would you like them to have for contact information for you oh thanks Lori well first of all you can buy our book you say goodbye and we say hello on Amazon and also Barnes and Noble um, and if you're in Chicago, uh, at uh, Women and Children's First Bookstore is uh, is selling it. So there's lots of places to buy the book. And then as far as contacting us, our website is Brenner Pathways, all one word and it's plural, pathways, uh, dot org. And, okay. um, and uh, they can write us there. There's a link there where they can email us. And we'd love to hear from people. And... Lori, again, thank you so much for this and great opportunity. And it's been an honor, Lori. Yeah. Lori, it's been an honor because, uh, you know, you, you meet a lot of people on this uh, journey, but you you definitely get it. So we're, yeah. we're privileged. We're privileged. Yeah. It's it's just it's so fun connecting with everyone. And I, I hope to be able to meet you guys in person. It'd be fun to yes. share a stage with you somewhere. Oh, or do, oh we'd love to. Do, do another radio show together. Yeah. Um Keep us posted, but I, I highly encourage people. This book is absolutely wonderful. It's an easy read. It's a great resource. Uh, I think it will help so many people around the world called thank You too. Say Goodbye, We Say Hello. So thank you so much for being with us today, Tom and Karen. Enjoy your weekend, okay? You thank too, you. Lori. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Lori. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Bye. Before I pull our next guest in, I am just going to highlight a couple of um, a couple of things 
going on here. Uh, Alzheimer's Disease International, we had some problems in terms of scheduling uh, their show, or rescheduling, I should say, because we had some difficulties when they were in Taipei for the conference. We're tentatively looking at getting that uh, show rescheduled for the 17th, and I will keep you updated I also wanted to highlight just some really, I think, cool things that are on Alzheimer's Speaks blog this week. Um, one is Max um, Wallach, uh, who is a 16-year-old going to Boston University, whose grandma had the disease, and he. Uh, there's just a beautiful article about him, and he is on this mission to find a cure for Alzheimer's disease. He also has a company called Puzzles to Remember, where he um, gets puzzles and he sends them out to nursing homes. He sent them to My Memory Cafe. Um, and the people just love them because they're big piece puzzles, easy to do. So he sent them for, and I know our participants are really loving this activity. So that might be an article of interest there's also a video uh, that I just put on the other day from Keith Oliver, and he is a man living with early onset, and he really talks about what it's like, and it will just be a fantastic tool. I think it's about eight minutes long, but you are going to find so much great information in there. Um, I don't care if you're a professional or a family member or just somebody who wants to learn more. Wonderful, wonderful video. And then um, Music First with Coral Health, there's an article there. Um, I had talked about that a little bit earlier where they have an application that you can get for $4.99 a month, and they have thousands of pieces of music specific to help people with dementia. Um, that would be something, again, I think that is great because, you know, if you can have it on your phone and it can help with agitation or eating or sleeping, there's just so many different things um, music can do and the power behind it. I think that's an article worth reading. And then Norms McNamara, our friend over in the UK, Mr. Powerhouse, changing the world on making things dementia-friendly. Norms... Um, there's an article that lists a bunch of his videos there, and I know that people are always looking on, uh, you know, where can they get more information. Uh, there's also an article on disability benefits, which I know is just a real um, sore spot for people on how do I process, how do I apply, what does it take to do this. And then last, um, I just want to ask for your prayers. I had mentioned to our audience before, uh, in St. Paul, Minnesota, there's a contest to become dementia-friendly, or, or a contest for a million-dollar idea, and I submitted a proposal to become dementia-friendly. And they're going to be picking the semifinalists and announcing that on May 9th. And so send your prayers and good juju our way um, that we end up being one of those finalists. We would love to be the first city in the U.S. to become dementia-friendly. So, um, again, uh, that would just be fantastic. And one, oh, one other thing I wanted to mention. I just received some books in the mail from Trevor Mumby, and they just look so interesting. And his books are about conducting well-being with dementia in the family, um, Coaching for Carers, A Fresh Look. But he is uh, somebody that I also am looking at getting getting on the radio show, filled with great, great information. So 
With that, let me introduce our next guest that we're so privileged to have with us today. Ellen Gerst is a grief and relationship coach. She's an author and a workshop leader. Um, She uses a combination of her personal experience as a young widow and her professional expertise and assists clients and readers to look at challenging life circumstances from a different perspective. Um, In doing this, she enables them to move gracefully towards a renewal of life and of love. Ellen has written on a myriad of topics and... um, you know, they're all underlying themes of, of healthy relationships. You can visit, she has like a little library on her website. Um, and if you go there, you'll get a full list of subjects that include coping with grief and caregiving, spirituality, the development of positive thought, which, you know, Tom and Karen were just talking about, um, love, dating, and relationships. And so today, our topic with Ellen is going to be about her new book that's just out, Why Am I So Angry at My Parents? And it's all about understanding the grief um, that a caregiver has. So welcome, Ellen. How are you doing today? Good. I I think I'll make one little correction. That's not the name of my book. Oh, I'm Um, sorry. I'm sorry. Why don't you go go ahead and correct me on that with the name of the book? It's understanding dementia and caregiving for your aging parents from A to Z. Oh, and okay. I like to write in in these short, concise messages because people are so busy; they don't have a lot of time. They just want some quick information that they can digest later on. So I try to try to keep it simple in it in, in an A to Z format. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Well, I ap- I apologize for that, and I'm glad we got that squared away. So um, Ellen and I have kind of known each other through social media for a while now, and so it's kind of exciting to have you um, on board with us here on the radio show and to hear a little bit um, more about what you're doing. Can you tell us before we start, have, have you been personally touched with a family member or friend with dementia? Yes, my mom is 93 years old. She's probably in the in the mid the later mid stage. She still recognizes people. She lives in assisted living, but she you know, she she needs help she with the daily tasks, uh, you know, showering and choosing the clothes and they, but she can participate in activities and and the like. So it's it's been a, I just moved her in there in, from independent living in November and it's been absolutely wonderful. Okay, great. Well, that's that's just a gift in and of itself that you feel comfortable where she's at because um, that's a big, big worry that, that families have um, many times um, is that whole placement issue. But can you tell us um, how you feel understanding the process of grief can help a care partner um, when they're dealing with dementia? Sure. Well, I, I think in general society doesn't like to deal with death and grief and loss, we rather brush it under the rug because, you know, who wants to look at that? And Mm -hmm. it's only until you're confronted with the loss of a person that that you're thrown into this mix and you you have to, it's learn as you go. And I, and I think that people don't realize when they're confronted with their parents' illness 
that they're having some of their emotional reactions are a grief response because they haven't they haven't been taught that so it's it's understandable and and grief's you know a funny thing no one experiences it the same um but you know there's some universal truths about it so that's what i wanted to just discuss just to to get your uh, your listeners some idea of of what grief is all about okay I, and I, you know i don't know if, if people have heard that when you're mourning it's it's called going on a journey you know it's the grief journey but that's really true for for everything in life. Life life is a journey, and when you have a crisis or a loss, and losses come in all different sizes, but you know, a little disappointment that's a loss too, and and we need to learn how to, to how to handle that. So we're stopped in our tracks when when a loss confronts us, and there are various paths you can take, and. There's the hard way, <laughs> and I won't, say it's the easy, I won't say it's the easy way, but if you understand something about grief and what you're experiencing, then then it can be a little bit easier on you. Mm-hmm. So I think when when you finally learn that your parents have a, a dementia or an Alzheimer's diagnosis, that is the start, you're starting on your pre-journey. Um, I I'm sure are you familiar with um Elizabeth Kubler Ross's uh Oh book sure. On dying? Yeah. So she says that there are five steps to the grief journey. Denial and isolation, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance. And you know, people I think people get stuck in this and I don't think that they're written in stone and you don't necessarily have to feel them all, they don't have to be in that order, you can go back and forth. But I think that's a framework, and you can say, oh, that that's how I'm feeling. I'm not crazy. Other people have felt that way. So I I, I think that that's a just a good thing as a as a basis to to keep in mind. Well, and I I like that you mentioned that there's not a right or wrong way to grieve. You know, there there are definite stages and stuff. But I do believe I you know, and I'm not a researcher, but I do believe people ebb and flow through those, just like they ebb and flow through stages of dementia. It's, you know, it's not cut and dry. Somebody can be very lucid one moment and not so much the next. And, you know, three weeks later, um, they, that lucidity might come back again uh, just for a short period of time, and people are shocked, and it's it it does. It, it ebbs and it flows, and we have to learn to be able to be, I think, flexible um, with with the process. Um, instead of trying to trying to control it, um, can you can you give us um, maybe a little bit of an outline, or or maybe even define? And this might sound kind of silly, but define what you see grief as. I do. I, I just want to. I, I will, but I just want to comment mm-hmm. on one thing you said because I had a perfect example of that happen to me this week with my mother with the ebb and the flow. My uh, one of my sisters and brother-in-law came out to visit my mom, and they've been married for, you know, over 40 years. My mother's been to their house. They live in New York, you know, many, many times. And they they were leaving. They left, you know, at, at the beginning of the week. And the next day, my mother says to me, who is that man, you know, that your sister was with? <laughs> and my jaw just dropped to the floor that she that she didn't know who that was. 
you know, of course I didn't let her say that. I just said, oh, that's her husband. And she said, oh, when did she, is that her first husband? Did she, you know, when did she marry him and where they live? It, it was like she, that memory was completely erased from her mind. And that's the first time that that has happened with her, about not knowing a family member. Mm-hmm. What, what's interesting about it, she, over the week she asked me many times, we went over the same story, you know, over and over again. And she seems to have leveled off because now she's made a new story in her mind that she now she either she recalls it or she now has it in her mind that you know these two are married and that's his name and it was it was very very interesting and i have a uh, clinical psychologist come in once a week to work with her to do memory games and i asked her about that and she said it could have been overstimulation because she uh, they spent so much time with her that it it got it out of her routine a little bit, and and it was it, may, it might have been too much for her. And then when she went back into her regular pattern, she seems to have stabilized. So that you know, some some has you know two steps forward, you know two steps backwards, and and one step forward. Yep, exactly, exactly. Um, so why don't we have you kind of define grief and how you how you see it show up in people? Okay. Well, uh, you know. First of all, I think, let me draw you a picture. I think grief is this big, when you're confronted with loss, it's this big brick wall, and it's so tall. It goes up to the sky. It goes out to the sides. You cannot get, get over it. You cannot go around it. The only way is to go through it, and it's painful to go through it, but surprisingly enough, there's a lot of joy that you encounter along the way. So another way to look at this situation is that if you just – I like to make this statement, and I want to make sure that people don't take it the wrong way, but every event in life is neutral. It's the individual that's going to color this event with an emotion. So my mother is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. You know, I can say that's a good thing. Or a bad thing. Now, obviously, it's it's not as black and white as that. But in in order to make proper decisions for her, I need to come to neutral about that event. So what that means is that when I found this out, and you know, it was you know a long time in coming, my emotions swung like a pendulum, you know, high to low, and I was holding on for dear life until I figured out, why is my mother acting this way? I, I can't understand it. She was always independent, and, and I would get angry at her, which, you know, was one of those grief responses, and then I would deny, well, no, nothing's going on. So you feel all those emotions, and that's how you're processing them. But you know, I'm sure you've seen a pendulum, you know, those little balls that you, you pull one back and they go back and forth. So, so Lori, yep. what, happens? What, what happens eventually to, the, to those balls with the pendulum? After it finishes swinging back and forth, what happens? Well, they stay still after, I mean, after they stop, I mean, eventually. They, they, they come to neutral. So mm-hmm. that's when you are done processing your emotions and you can jump off that, you know, that roller coaster and then that's when you can make good decisions. And it's, yeah. it's, it's the same. That's how you process grief. Of course you feel your emotions. So I'm, I, that's why I'm saying I want you to, people don't to take it the wrong way. Of course you feel horrible about this situation. And it's, not, you know, 
in not in anybody's imagination is it a good thing, but you come to neutral and you say, well, let me see if there is anything good from this, um, just like your your last guest said. And I think one of the one of the good things that you can take from it is, let's say you had an acrimonious relationship with your parents. Well, when everything is stripped away from a person's life, the only thing that's left is love. Now, you know, mm-hmm. it's bar, you know, abuse, you know, and you know, extraneous things. But but mostly you have love left, and it's your relationships that count. So when you can take away all those things that you know your parents said to you when you were young, that you know that, that you know that you kept harboring in your brain, you know, your, all those buttons they can push, all that all that's gone, and you can just have this simple, peaceful relationship with them. I know when I go to visit my mother now, and, and I had a good relationship with her, you know, throughout the years, but I know that no matter what stress I am feeling work-wise or anything else in my life, when the time that I spend with her is stress-free because everything is so simple. I can just be with her. The other day I went over for a couple of hours and I laid on her bed and read my book and she sat in her easy chair and and looked at her book. And it was and you know she got up and she walked by my walked by to go to the bathroom and she tickled the bottom of my feet. It was just such a simple peaceful couple of hours to spend with her and the rest of the world could go away. And that's so that's just changing your perspective on on seeing the good things even in the bad. And that's how people get through grief because you learn so much about yourself. Grief is just an introspective journey to learn about yourself and to figure out how you're going to confront the world. And when you've had a terrible loss, life becomes more precious and you know the only thing that counts is love. So as painful as loss is, you know, if you use it properly, you can you can use those lessons for the rest of your life and apply them to to whatever other relationships you'll have and in your professional life. It's it's just it gets you down to your core. Well, and I totally agree with you. You have to feel the pain to move through it, and so many people want to mask it um, through you know denial or it could be drugs or alcohol or you know whatever. Um, but it, you really you have to process it, and I and I love that you say that. You know, the emotions are really neutral. It's just what we choose to do with them. They're not good. They're not bad. They just are, and we have to process them and and then move forward. And once we embrace that, I mean, if you can train yourself to do that, it's so much easier and so much more or less stressful than carrying that heavy baggage of, I should be dealing with this, but I don't want to, <laughs> you know. That's what I said. You can do it the hard way or you can do it the, the less hard way. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, let's talk about um, some practicalities and, and some lessons of grief that might be able to help our, our audience um, work with uh, if it's you know parents or friends that uh, have dementia. Can you give us some examples? Well, um, I think there's a lot of anger going on. Um, sometimes the parent's angry, sometimes you're angry, but I think you need to really look below the the surface of anger because if you can accept that there are only two emotions 
that people have. They either have love, they either see life through love or they see life through the eyes of fear. And anger is a fear-based reaction. If you just take a step back and you say, well, why am I angry? So <clears throat> when you when until you know what's going on and your and your parents are acting out of character and they're they're doing weird things and you, you're almost like a child you're, you're getting angry at them why don't you know better you know how could you do this and what are you afraid of well in the back of your mind you're saying well i'm afraid there's something really drastically wrong here and it comes out as anger the other thing is when you when you realize that your parents have you know dementia and you're angry also and you say well you're you're afraid of well if they have this gene does that mean that I'm going to have it too and then you you get worried about that and mm-hmm. and if your parents are going to you know are dying well that's going to make you an orphan and you, and and that means you're next up well that's another fear Mm-hmm. If you're if you're at the beginning stages and they can't live by themselves and you need to become a caregiver, well, you're probably you know you have mixed emotions about this because you 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 love your parents, you want to take care of them, but hey, you know we're of the baby boomer age and we worked hard and we're getting ready to retire and enjoy our lives and all of a sudden I have to take care of my parent and that's going to change my lifestyle. Well, you know, it's natural to be ang- angry about that, and people beat themselves up for feeling that way, but that's a natural emotion. So that's, you have to process that and, and, and release them. Yeah, uh, well, because it's, it's, it's about change, and none of us at our core like change because change is scary. Even, even, you know, me, I mean, I, I typically tell people I love change, and I, you know, but there's moments where, you know, you get that little panic of, what's it really going to be like, you know? And so it's it's that nervousness of not having control that we're, you know, it's drilled into us we're, as a society. You know, we're supposed to be in control all the time. And caregiving you can't always control. Well, I, I think if you think you're in control any of the time, mm-hmm. you know, you just have to, sometimes you just have to let go. And and the thing about change is that even if something is going to change your life for the better, that still means upheaval. Let's say, you you know, you you win this, you know, this wonderful contest. Well, that's probably going to change your life for the better, but you're going to have to make adjustments in your life and any sort of change, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're afraid of. And it, 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 it because it it gets us out of our routine that we're used to doing, and we have to look at life in new ways. And then if you, you know, if this changes, well, then I have to go back and change these other things. And it, it's a it's a process. Mm-hmm. That's why people are, are afraid of change. You know, one of the other changes, and something else you can be angry about, but if you look below, it's really a fear, is, if you if your parents don't have the funds to go into a, you know a caregiving home or you know whatever they need, well you say, well how am I going to have the funds enough to pay for it, and how is that going to infringe upon my life? So there's 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 lots of anger to be or fear really to be mm-hmm. to be worked out. Well, and then and then there's the case where the family has the money, but they don't want mom and dad spending it because they were hoping that was going to be their inheritance. Right. 
Um, so you have all different types of dynamics that can be happening at multiple levels within the family, too, um, plus all the outside agencies. And, you know, there isn't – we don't teach people um, how to how to care for themselves or for others. I mean, it's just kind of this osmosis thing, but, the, you know, there – we really don't talk about it openly as a society in terms of what does it take. and it, Because I believe there's kind of a basic skill set and a lot of what you're talking about would be wonderful if people had that basic skill set to be able to remove a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear and help them move forward. And again, not that they can't, um, that, they, that they're able to ignore what they're feeling, but to teach them how to process it. I think it's, I think it's sad that we don't, we don't value that enough to teach that. Um, I, know, I mean, I, I work with a lot of widows and they, they flounder so much. I mean, I, I floundered. I was widowed um, 18 years ago. And there was, you know, I was 39 years old, and nobody knew what to do with a young widow back then. Now there's there's a lot more support. But, you know, no, I had to figure it out by myself because nobody told me, nobody validated my feelings and said, it's okay to feel this way. Everybody feels this way. And that's why you and that's what I said at the beginning. Society is failing us by not mm-hmm. teaching these things. Yeah, and I think it's very, it's very sad. It is sad, and I think the more we talk about it, hopefully, the more that will change. And you know, I think so much of the time we focus on teaching this to the adults, and the adults don't want to, uh, you know, appear vulnerable to their kids. Well, it's life. We. This is this isn't a stage. This is just something that's continuous that happens in our life and can be applied on many levels. And so we shouldn't be ashamed if we're struggling um, with giving care or being cared for. Um, but we we do need to you know work our way through it. And then you know I would really love to see people. Um, and that's one of the reasons I started Alzheimer's Speaks was to have this honest conversation of not feeling embarrassed because when people talk about their emotions honestly, I mean, yeah, there might be somebody who's uncomfortable, but even if they're uncomfortable, you've touched them um, in a spot that that they needed to go, you know, that they needed to value um, and realize because they're probably stuffing stuff. And, you know, I have seen so many people later on go, you know, that was strange for me to hear, but I really processed it because um, part of it, um, and I've had people say this multiple times, part of it is is that they're not used to people being honest. And I just thought, what a sad comment. They're not used to people really being honest about what they're feeling and how it's affecting them to be able to work through that. And, um, you know, to me, to me that's just, uh, it's it's an awful state that we're in. And it's much more difficult. It makes it much more difficult for everyone to process if we can't <clears throat> truly be authentic. And, again, you can't get... You know, you can't take it out on somebody and, and be evil or get physical or anything like that. But to to be able to validate that you have emotions um, and that they're there 
you know, allows you, like you said, to process through them. Right, so, and I any, think just mm-hmm. as a society in general, people don't like to appear vulnerable. I, I yeah. mean, I help people with, with, you know, with dating. And that's why I say every, everything in life is about grief and relationships because uh-huh. life is a series of losses and rebirths, and the mm-hmm. only thing that counts is your relationships. So when when people date at an older age if they've lost a spouse, they turn back into teenagers, and they're afraid of being rejected. They're afraid of being vulnerable. So instead of allowing themselves to feel their emotions and maybe get hurt, they will reject first just to protect themselves from, from not having another loss. I, I, I think what you said about being uncomfortable um, when people hear these things, I, I think it's good to be uncomfortable. If you know how to, because we tend to be complacent. We go along and we and we we do our things by rote, and 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 we don't want to move move out of our pathway. And when you're uncomfortable, you you grow. I, you know, I, I love this um, quote by and my website is called Lost and Found. And it's based on a quote from like the 15th century. It said, "I rather be lost than found." And and what I mean by that is. I, you know, when, when you're found and things are going along well, as I said, you become complacent. Now, I don't want to really be very lost, but I want to be—I want to be a little lost, so that urges me on to keep exploring, to keep learning. Uh, my, my husband gets mad at me. He says, "Well, you're always changing your mind." Well, I don't want to be stuck in something. If I get new information, then I have to go back and reprocess my thoughts, and that may result in me seeing things from a different perspective. You know, I'm not talking about my base, you know, morals and values that remain the same, but I, but the way I look at things should always be in flux. That's when you say when, oh, couples need to grow together. Well, that's, that's what growing is, is, to, is taking in new information and assimilating it and then seeing which path you want to go on. I like that explanation because it is um... – you know, life to me is is a journey, and it's one of constant learning. And so, if you keep it in, the, you know, if you keep that mindset, that you're never ever going to have all the right answers. You know, you're going to have the right answer, the best answer for that particular moment with the knowledge you have and the experiences that you have. But the next moment's going to be a little different, and so. It doesn't have to be exactly the same. And I think people get so stuck thinking it has to be exactly the same. And it's so freeing. And, again, it's so um, you don't judge yourself as much. You don't judge others as much. Um, you, you are, you know, it allows you to look look through a whole different lens that, um, to me, has brought me just a ton of calm. I mean, my friends joke that I'm the calm one um, because I, it takes a lot to get me rattled. And I, and I think it's because I, I'm always trying to look at, you know, even if I disagree with what is happening around me, I always try to figure out what's causing that. Something right. caused that. Something triggered that. Because people, I think, at heart are good you know, they're not going to do something bad, but something, their perspective, their their experiences is drawing them to act in a certain way to make them feel safe. Well, and, and that's why I said most of those responses are fear-based. 
Mm-hmm. If you look below the surface, you know, greed is fear. Jealousy is fear. When you act out, it's fear because mm-hmm. you you know, you just want to keep your place, and you're and you're holding on for dear life, and you and and so you and you don't know how to do it. You know, the other thing is that lots of you know, let's say you know your parent, you've you know you've been angry at them, or you know you you you're not happy with you know how the situation has gone, and you start beating yourself up and feeling guilty about it, but you didn't have a maybe you didn't have a clear picture, so. Everything looks crystal clear when, in retrospect. Oh, I should have done that. I should have done this. But you can only make decisions with the with the best information in front of you. And mm-hmm. and again, don't be stuck. If you get some some good information, filter that in and and make a new decision. Yeah, yeah. Very, very, very true. I think um, you know when it comes to dementia, there's so many levels of grief too. Because it's um, it's kind of this. Uh, some people have described it as an ambiguous death because of the the number of losses that go through. And I I think there's you know you can focus on the losses, or you can focus on what's still present. To do do you work with people on on that aspect as well? Yeah, that's you know that's that's. Being living in gratitude, be be grateful for what you have in the moment, rather than bemoaning what you've lost. And mm-hmm. sometimes it it is you know, for example, what I said, you know, you can have this great relationship with your parents that maybe you didn't have when you were younger, because because all that stuff is is peeled away. Um, I, I and I think it helps you to become more patient. You know, one of the things that people you know, go nuts with is they're talking to a patient, you know, a, a family member who has dementia, and you know they repeat the same story over and over and over again. It's like you're ready to pull out your hair. And one thing that you can do is, you know, keep a keep a straight face, and in your mind, just keep saying to yourself every time they say the same thing, "This is the first time they have heard this information, and mm-hmm. it's brand new to them." And if you can calm yourself with that then every time they say it you can you can just give the same answer over and over again like it's the very first time and that just takes away a lot of your anxiety so i think well, that's a and that's a great phrase because um of what i what i found very interesting when people are giving care is that we make it about us and so you know when you're getting upset over you know a reaction from them you're you're making the care about you and you're you're changing the environment you're changing the attitude but if you can say hey this is the first time they've heard it now you're you're focused on them and you're right. able to let it go um i have a tool called your memory chip which um does the same thing just a, a little bit different but i uh, what i found was people are so task for you know focused they got to do this and that and this and that and this and that and i try to get people to focus on three simple things are they safe? Are they happy? And are they pain free? Because that's really all that matters, right? You know. And right. then the focus goes making making you know for my mother it's making her comfortable, making her feel safe, and whatever you have to do to yep. to do those things that that is your task. For instance, yep. when she was in independent living, you know, a lot of paranoia comes with dementia, mm-hmm. and 
she would when things went missing, which of course she you know she was hiding. Mm-hmm. She blamed, you know, a specific person. This person is coming in when I'm not here and taking my things, you know, and, you know, old clothing, you know, inconsequential things. So what I did was I installed a little camera that, that you know, was attached to a computer, and it, it focused on the front door. And I would go through it with her. Every time she would say something was was missing, I would go through it with her and show her all the pictures. It was by by the second <laughs> Mm-hmm. So that nobody was coming in except her. Uh, when when that didn't work because she insisted, you know, they were coming in some other way, then I put a double lock on her door, and she was the only one that had the key. And that made her feel safe for many, many months until, you know, she had another step down, and, and that didn't work either. So mm-hmm. you just have to figure out new ways of looking at the situation and saying how – it doesn't matter if logically to you it's not happening. Like, you know, why yeah. would this person want, you know, a broken coffee cup? Well, it doesn't matter. It, they they have lost their ability to reason and to look at it logically. They have made something is missing and they have made a story to fit into why it's missing because otherwise they would have to admit, even if they have the power to admit that something must be wrong with them. And and that's their fear because mm-hmm. You know, they're co- sometimes they're cognizant enough to know, I don't remember this. this. There must be something really wrong with me. And, and, like, I never use the word Alzheimer's with my mother. I just say, you know, you, your memory's not as good as it used to be. I mean, why, why? It's like you were saying that, you know, you have to, do, you have to stop thinking about yourself. You know, why, I might want to say, you know, you have Alzheimer's and you have no memory and, and, and this is why this is happening. Well, what good would that do? That would just yep. frighten her. Mm-hmm. That, would be, that would be for me to get it off my chest because I'm so, you know, aggravated about it. No, yep. but for her, I'm not lying to her. I'm just not, and I'm telling her the truth. I'm just not naming the truth. Yep. And she can accept, she knows that her memory is, is failing in some ways. I mean, she'll yeah. even say that. Oh, I, you know, I can't remember a thing. So you just, you, you really have to. It's it's you have to do what's best for them, not what's best for you. Yeah, and and the words we choose are very important. My mom got to the point where she would say, "Oh, I have Alzheimer's," and then and then mm-hmm. she'd giggle like, "That's my excuse." You know, <laughs> don't expect me to remember. You know, and I mean, it was kind of a game, and. Yeah. um and so it was funny she would remember that, but not, you know, remember other things and stuff. And But it was all about what she was comfortable with. And that, you know, those paranoid um, states of mind can be very trying on everybody. But what we have to think about is, you know, when we're paranoid or when we're scared, that's an awful feeling. And, and for them to be in that state and us not to be able to explain it, in a logical fashion, then, you know, we have to kind of put that investigative hat on, look for ways to be able to remove that. Like you said, logic or not, doesn't matter. It's about they have a right to feel safe and comfortable. And um, sometimes we just don't think about the, the core task at hand is really caring for a person, not just physically, but emotionally, Right. And, right. And and really I think the other struggle that I think children have a lot with their parents is um losing that relationship. 
you know, well, with their parents. Right, but it, it's losing the relationship and switching roles because now you're the parent and they're the child. And, that, you know, that that's a hard thing to get your mind against. Here are these parents who were independent and successful and someone to whom you could always go to for advice, and now that's your role. Yep. You know, that they're so helpless, and that's that's a very difficult thing to see, and that's part of grieving. You're looking at your parents <clears throat> dying a little step at a time, and of course you're going to have all these different confusing emotions. And when you don't, that, that's my entire point, when you don't realize that it's a grief response, then you don't know what to do with those emotions. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, we're all dying, you know, one way or the yeah. other. The moment we're but born, we, we're all dying. Yeah, but we, we look at it, you know, and like I said with Tom and Karen, we look at this as a crisis state when we give care. And one of the things that I learned to reframe with, with my own mom was um, the gift of being able to see her be a child, that was that that's an ama- I mean if you can switch your mindset and let go of something that you can't control it's fascinating to see the interaction and and you know the filters are gone and the 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 joy the levels of joy and the levels of anger because the filters are gone um it it's incredible uh, it, it's absolutely um, an incredible gift, and, and the repercussion of that gift with my mom was she taught me to play again. Because as an adult, we don't—we're not good at playing. You know, it's, right. everything is serious. You know, and and um, and some people are better at it than others. But she really taught me to play again and not take things so seriously. And that, again, removed a lot of stress in my life that I was carrying that I didn't need to carry. Right. Well, I know that my mom was always very stoic. I mean, you know, I was totally loved, cared for, had a great upbringing. But my family wasn't very demonstrative, so Mm -hmm. not a lot of hugging or, you know, I love yous. And now... All she wants to do is give you a hug, and it, it really is an amazing transformation to to see. Just going back, you're right, going back to that core before life got in the way of, that caused her to, you know, to become stoic. She had to take care of her father and her mother, and she, you know, she had a lot of responsibilities. So she mm-hmm. she was very strong, and now she can. She doesn't have to be so strong because I make her feel safe. If she has a problem, she can call me. She lives ten minutes away. I go there, I solve her problem, and you can see that you can visually see the anxiety go away because I think I will take care of it. Yeah, and what a beautiful thing that is. Um, the the other thing that I found, you know, with my mom was because, and, and this took a while in the process because we had gone through the paranoid state, but then she got to, you know, another another stage where she didn't judge anything anymore. She was just accepting and she really, she wasn't um, f- fearful for the most part and she was just very content and you know, I, I I talk about it in um, one of the, I can't remember what I wrote, but one story about her just being the safest place in the world to go, because she doesn't judge. She just loves me. Right, right. 
Yeah, that's what I said. I just I look at, at going to visit her as an oasis of serenity. Mm-hmm. If you yeah. just get away, and you know, and I'm there, you know, where she lives quite often. It's a sm- it's a small place that only has thirty people, you know, and I'm. You know, I'm buddies with everybody because I'm like another resident there. And I so enjoy being with them all. Well, and and what um what a black and white scenario from you view it as an oasis I do to others going, do I literally and you probably have had this happen to people trying to give you permission to not have to go visit because they feel it's so painful. Right. And, you know, because because of the fear, because they don't know how to interact, they don't know what to do, and they go down this rabbit hole of, you know, they're dying and it's the end. And there's, I mean, my mom has been in her end stages for four years. You know, right. the end state, what does end stages mean? N- not mm. a whole lot, you know. Right. It means we have to communicate differently, like any other stage in our life, you know. <laughs> we just yeah. have to communicate but we still have to continue to live live life and and embrace it um what do you think um in terms of counseling do you think counseling can really help um a caregiver and or a, a parent that that might have dementia or a person with dementia well the way i use counseling is that when i wanted to move my mother from independent living to assisted living she, of course, was protesting. And instead of me being the bad guy, I went to, to go to the psychologist, and, you know, he gives the, the tests and talks to her and whatever, and, and he comes back with the recommendation, I think this is a move you need to make, it's safer, what, you know, whatever he said. And then every time she would bring it up, and I went to her regular doctor too, and every time she brought it up, I would say, you know, it's not my decision. This is what your doctor and the psychologist are saying, and I have to follow the doctor's recommendations. So it, mm-hmm. it lets you out of being the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, count, I, I don't know how much counseling, you know, how much discussion, you know, true counseling would help. But what I didn't realize is that if your parent is on Medicare, that I can go to the therapist. If my parent goes first, I can mm-hmm. go to the therapist as long as I talk about my issues with my parent. That's covered through her policy. So, okay. Yeah, I mean, I haven't gone, you know, maybe I went, you know, a couple of times just to for hints on how to handle things and whatever, but that's a, that's a great thing. And then this psychologist recommended this company. I said I had a clinical psychologist coming to my mom's place you know, once a week. It's called A Wiser Mind. And right now they're in Arizona and Colorado, but I'm, I'm sure there are other places like it, and they have clinical psychologists do home visits. And, you know, she did a, a legacy project with my mother, which we took out all the old pictures. And she st- and I'm always there when, when she's there because I find it absolutely fascinating to listen to it, how much, my, how much of my mother is still in her. This, the psychologist has the tools to draw the information out that maybe I don't. And she she gave her, you know, those normal tests that the neuropsychologist gives, and she failed them terribly. Mm-hmm. But she, those tests are not indicative of how much my mother has going on. She, you know, you, know, you have to count, you know, with three numbers or, you know, or she gives her three numbers to repeat back, you know, three, six, nine. Mm-hmm. And my mother maybe can't repeat back the numbers, 
but she can tell her the relationship between the three and the six and the nine, that you're adding three on each one. So uh-huh. there's a lot more going on than than those tests show. I, I'm saying, yes, you should get those tests, you should get a diagnosis, but but just don't write them off just because it says, oh, they you know, they can't remember a thing. There is much more going on inside. You just need the the tools to to know how to get to them. Yeah, when my mom got uh, formally diagnosed, was probably, oh, 15, oh gosh, probably 20 years ago, I guess now, with Alzheimer's, um, and we we had known, you know, 10 years prior, and she knew there were issues, but when the test came back then, it was, she had Alzheimer's, and she had the mentality of a three-year-old, don't let her out of your sight, and a lot of people, you know, I mean, would have looked at that as just, you know, stop. Um, she can't do anything. And, and mom was still able to do a ton of stuff. Um, you know, her social skills were extremely good. And I, I personally believe she's still alive today and been hanging on, even though she's been in her end stages for years, because of the care she's getting at Volunteers of America and and the um, the engagement, it, you know, the right. level of engagement is still there. And you know, if people have purpose, they have power. And right. and when they don't, and and this goes for all of us, not just someone with dementia, you know, then we get we get depressed and withdrawn. And so, well, you know, is, when we, mm-hmm. everybody's on their deathbed. Are they mm-hmm. going to be call? You know, are they going to be saying, "Oh, you know, I made so much money, and I was, you know, everybody lauded me as being, you know, the best in my field." No, the only thing that's going to count are your relationships. And yeah. if you can learn that before you're on your deathbed, you're ahead of the game. Because really, to love and be loved—that if you, if you can make that your mantra to go through life, you're going to lead a much, much happier and uh, successful life. Oh, agree. Ellen, it's just been a joy to have you on the show. Can you tell people how to reach you? Sure. You can visit my website, and it's the letter L, the letter N, Gerst, G-E-R-S-T, dot com. I, I thought I was being so cute when I said that, you know, when I made my website, because if you say those letters out loud, it's Ellen, but people don't get it. <laughs> so <laughs> I need to spell it out. Um you, I have, a, as you said at the beginning, I have a list, of, a library of all my books on there. Um, you can also find them on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and the links are on my website. If people are uh, are grieving, have, have lost their parent, or know of anybody else, I also uh, give coping with grief tips every day on Facebook, and you can also find that on my website. And um, what's your Facebook page, Ellen? Is it just Ellen Gerst or? So it's called Words of Comfort to Pave Your Journey of Loss. And that's all one word together. Okay. So, you know, facebook.com backslash. Um, I, I am on the um, advisory board for a group that, called Hope for Widows, which, which helps widows of all, of all ages uh, go through their journey. And I, and I just think, those, you know, those, journey, those lessons learned from loss just serve you well for the rest of your life. Yeah, and one more time, tell people the name of your book. Understanding Dementia and Caregiving for Your Aging Parents from A to Z. Wonderful. Yep, it's uh, available as a Kindle book or as a soft cover. 
Okay. Well, great. Thank you so much for being part of the show today. You just added a lot of value. And have a wonderful weekend, okay? Thank you for having me. Okay. You too. Bye now. In wrapping up the show, I just want to um, remind people of my little mantra. It's helped me, and maybe it'll help you, that life is about progress, not perfection. Um, Again, if you are dealing with dementia and looking for uh, resources, support groups, um, associations in your area, check out Alzheimer's Disease International at www.alz.com dot co dot uk and you can find them on our website as well i'd also um highly encourage you to to go ahead and check out music first um with alzheimer's that's the app that uh, coral health has uh, developed and again their website is www.coro and then health h e a lth.com. I am just such a huge believer in the power of music. And again, they have um, music and they also have uh, choral faith as well with that. Our next show will be on the 6th and I'm going to have um, Keith Bringle with us. And he did a video about his experience with his, his father who has dementia. And we are going to have author Lisa Hirsch with us who wrote the book, My Mother, My Hero. On the 13th, we're going to be blessed to have Linda McLean with us, who uh, is another person who deals with uh, gratitude, and Dr. Um, Daniel Nightingale, who is doing some amazing work and is going to talk about some new approaches uh, to dementia. On the 20th, we have Gary Johnson with the Better Business Bureau, who will be with us, and we will also have... um, a woman who's wrote a beautiful book about her experience with her husband's dementia. On the um, 14th, we'll be doing a dementia chat. So take care, and we'll talk soon. Bye now. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.